Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to stay on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day. You can subscribe to our free daily email newsletter or download our handy smartphone app or just visit our website at subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Joining me from Nashville, Tennessee, is the Confucius Peace Prize runner-up Jeremy Goldcorn, who's been edged out of competition now, not only by Robert Mugabe, but also by Fidel Castro. Jeremy, man, I hope you're at least keeping that Miss Congeniality trophy burnished. <laughs> oh, yes, I am Miss Congeniality indeed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the fall is very beautiful in Tennessee, so I, I'm in a very calm mood yeah. today, so you can, I can relax. I can just rib you all I want, and, and I'm not going to get a rise out of you. <laughs> no, it's going to be tough. Uh, anyway, today we are delighted to be joined from Washington, D.C. by Scott Tong, a reporter for APM's Marketplace, uh, formerly stationed in Shanghai, where he was working when we were first introduced some years ago. Uh, and Scott just yesterday launched his book, A Village With My Name, a family history of China's opening to the world. It's an exploration of his family's history on both his paternal and maternal sides of the family, and it's a highly readable, very engaging story. Uh, Scott, congrats on the book launch, and, and welcome to Seneca. Well, thanks very much. Uh, really good to be with you guys. Thanks. Let me note at the top here that there are some spoilers in the podcast that we're going to do here. So uh, the book has some interesting surprises. So if you're allergic to spoilers, plan to read the book, which I very much encourage you to do. Uh, and if you absolutely don't want to hear the reveal, then I suggest you wait until you've read it and then come back and, and listen later. On that note, Scott, can you remind us of when you were in Shanghai? Yes, I... I went there in late 2006, so I was working for Marketplace, the uh, the daily business and economic show and public radio here in Washington, where I'd been living for a while, and they shipped me off to open the China Bureau in Shanghai in late 2006. And I didn't decide, but the bosses decided that Shanghai was the place to open the bureau to get the pulse of the Chinese economy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I still wonder if that was the right place to to go <laughs> to quickly understand the Chinese economy. But uh, that being what it was, I was there from 2006 to 2010 when I came back to the state. I think it's a pretty reasonable decision considering that, you know, Shanghai sort of always has been the economic capital of China. But uh, you were up in Beijing quite a bit too, I imagine, right? Doing a report. I, I was, yeah. And, and, and we'll talk about all, a lot of the things that I, that I didn't know when I first got to China. But one of them was, you know, to really understand the role of the state in the economy, you have to spend some time in Beijing, as you know, to really understand the uh, you know the financial side of the economy. How so much more money moves to the banks than the capital markets and the experts on the banking system, and those tend to be up in Beijing. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, yeah, yeah, you have to spend a lot of time in different parts of China. But uh, you know, certainly uh, starting off in Shanghai, there are obviously some pluses. But uh, you got to get around. So Scott, let's let's. I mean, on that note, let's let's establish a kind of uh, baseline uh, before we delve in. Yeah. Uh, first, two really two baselines. So first, mm -hmm. what was what was your level of of China knowledge before you actually began reporting uh, in Shanghai for Marketplace? How much formal training had you had? How much language? How much you know history and all that stuff? Well, um, I thought I knew what I was going to expect <laughs> going to to China. I'd, I'd, <laughs> You know, much of my youth was kind of bouncing between the states and greater China. Uh, my dad worked for IBM, so we got shipped off to Hong Kong when I was eight. was there for a couple of years in middle school and high school. I was in Taiwan, graduated from Taipei American School, took a whole lot of Chinese lessons back then throughout those years. So I, I was under the impression that I knew what to expect when I went to, uh, went to China. I went to college at Georgetown and, and uh, took a number of uh, uh, contemporary China and Chinese history courses. So I certainly made the case to, to my employer that I knew what I was going to be doing. 
uh, when I went there. Uh, and then we all kind <laughs> and, and of, how quickly were you disabused of this idea that you had a pretty good handle on it? Um, you know, pretty early on, uh, a banker there said, you know, don't spend too much time next to the skyscrapers because everybody gets the skyscraper syndrome. You go and you think, you know, the big fancy shiny object is the story. You, you think the China is a right now story. You know, there are all these shorthands about how China works. Um, and I bought into the instant China uh, thesis that it was that that was just this immediate story. Right. I mean, we have all these bumper sticker slogans about uh, resurgent China or, or choking China or global China, you know, poor China, aggrieved China. These these little phrases that, you know, tell us a little bit about the story. And, and if you're a business reporter, I think it's very easy to fall into this, this instant China story. You know, you ask people to, to tell their economic life story. Uh, you know, the beginning point is reform and opening, right? Gaiga Kaifeng. You can get Gaiga Kaifeng to death when you go to China and, and, and hear all those stories. And it fits the narrative, right? Right. There's the fall and then there's the redemption. And people's lives help tell that story. And un- unless you really kind of delve into it and pay attention to it, it's easy to get lost into the right now China story. Yeah, very much. I, I totally agree. Uh, I-, I guess the second baseline I want to establish is what was your level of, of Tung and Sun family knowledge yep. uh, prior to undertaking research for your book? Uh, I mean, let's let's not do too much of a big reveal here, but what, what did you yep. know about your family background before you, you undertook this? There was a lot that, until I asked about it, that wasn't told to me, you know, and this is just at the level of my grandparents. This is not distant family stuff. Right. Um, the The way I think about it is um, you guys may have been in this bank. Uh, along the Bund in Shanghai, there's the, the old Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, the yeah, one with yeah. the dome on it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Gorgeous and, building. And, and that story of that, oh, and then inside you walk in and this beautiful mosaic is on the inside of the dome, uh, you know, which obviously predates 1949. And the story to that is, you know, soon after the communists took over, instead of destroying and taking all the tiles down, they they plastered it over. And and what it is, it's a picture of kind of global China, right? It was all the branches around the world that the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank had established in different parts of the world. So instead of destroying it, they plastered it over. And then when it became okay to look outward again and become a global China, they just removed the plaster. And so the history that had been hidden underneath, you know, was revealed again. And, and when I saw that, I'm like, you know, I wonder as I started this book project, you know, how much, you know, of the Tong and the Sun family history has also been plastered over, you know, by shame or, or, or other reasons, but was still underneath kind of waiting to, to be revealed and to understand and to be told. So, for instance... I, I didn't know anything about my maternal grandfather. And we'll hear a little more about why you didn't know so much about your maternal grandfather in, uh, in a little bit here, but let's not reveal too much. Yep. Scott, this seems like a, a good place to ask you. You, like many people I mm-hmm. know, including Kaiser, you know, you have very similar backgrounds in many ways. Uh, yeah. You know, first generation mm-hmm. to... Uh, grew up in the United States, parents, you know, going back Mm -hmm. and forth between greater China and the U.S., many of them engineers. Um, Many of your Mm -hmm. your contemporaries, American Chinese, have got interested in your own family histories in this way, interviewing parents and for those lucky enough to still have them, uh, even grandparents. Uh, You know, I know Kaiser Mm. is engaged on a similar project. Yep, yep, yep. Um, that generation, yep. I mean, both your parents and their parents, they lived in amazing times. Uh, but that is true for just mm-hmm. about anyone who lived through long spans of it. Um, so, and, you know, I, I think you mentioned, uh, you know, either before the podcast or just now that um, you initially didn't ask a lot of questions about your family. What eventually got you so curious about your own family history that prompted you to write research and write this book? You know, that's a good question. I, I think as I think about it, there are a couple factors. For a lot of us, you know, you turn 40 and you start asking these questions. And, uh, so, you know, and that happened while I was in China and started to wonder. The other thing that happened was my father and I, you know, we took this long circuitous route and finally found the Tong family village uh. right in this forlorn part of northern Jiangsu province. And we went and we kind of got the initial story, the, the front story. Of, of what happened in the village. And there were these great, very 
commending stories about my great-grandfather, who was the first out of the village. But there was something that, as we left the place, I thought, you know, this is not the whole story, because our closest relative who still is in the village, he's my third cousin, we met him and he told a few stories. He was kind of frozen out of the lunch that happened the next day. He was somehow nudged out of the frame. And when we were leaving the village, he said, you know, next time you come to lunch at my house. And and I started to to think there's got to be something here. There's kind of more to to this story. As, as as you know, in many places, including China, when you go back a second time, it looks a yeah, lot different, yeah. and the stories are a lot Absolutely. different. Absolutely. So uh, I, I I really started to say I really need to go back and 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 get. And it turned out that the story was entirely different than the front story we got there. So I think that's what largely propelled me to say, you know, I I I do want to chase this. I think the other part of it was when I left China in 2010, I really felt I had a, a not entirely satisfying understanding of the long story of how, how China got to where it was. It's such a basic question, right? How did China get here? And so I had this broader set of economic history questions that I wanted to pursue as well. And whenever I started talking to the historians, they talked about you know the, this early Enlightenment generation in the early uh, 1900s. And so it kept intersecting with these interesting stories in my family. And then I decided, you know, I better try to chase this. I don't want to look back and not have tried. That's, that's great. Uh, I mean, Scott, what's interesting is you, you take uh, an approach in this book that's something I've not really seen before. You, you kind of turn the process of research into a substantial part of the book itself, into the, the book's narrative. It, it's kind of a documentary approach where we kind of see you you know, going into these archives, we see you making the effort to unearth this stuff, and, and that becomes part of, of the narrative. Mm. Uh, very interesting approach. W- was this intentional? And, and, and how did you, you come up with this, this, this idea? It was intentional. When I was, so I spent a long time writing up the proposal, uh, um, marketing it to people who didn't want it, <laughs> revising it, and asking people for their suggestions. And I spoke to, you guys have heard of Pietro Rivoli, the Georgetown professor who wrote the book about the T-shirt in the global economy, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and, and asked for her advice about you know, how she pulled off what she did. And one thing she, she said about her process was you know, she intentionally put herself into the story. And, you know, and, and professors don't tend to do that right, either, right. right? She said, you know, I wanted to, um, it, it, helped, it helped put the story, to hold the story together. And that is, you know, as she learned, the readers would kind of learn as she did. Um, and her being the, uh, the, the protagonist kind of helped to, to move things along and things would be illuminated to her uh, as they were illuminated to the reader at the same yeah, time. Yeah. So uh, very different from this, the voice of God perspective of telling a story. And I thought, you know, I think that's a, I mean, it's weird. It's uncomfortable as, as a journalist to, to include too much of yourself into the, into the story. But I bought into the approach. I, th- I thought that, you know, that's a good way to, to walk down the path with the listener and with the reader at the same time. Yeah, there's something, there's something kind of transparent and honest about it, too. I like that. Yeah, well, so, yeah, so it, it, it you know, tries to keep, keep you reading uh, as, I, you know, I had to use a fake ID to get into a library and, and uh, you know, <laughs> just, just about caught in, in the middle of a fight on a public the dodgy tricks and, of journalists, you know, huh? Uh, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no. This this is part of being a journalist, but part of this was as I was just kind of working on the book. You know, you just you you, you kind of run into this these maddening, crazy, ridiculous, fascinating China moments along the way. So why not put them in? Yeah, I I think that's a good approach, and it's also more honest. Um, <laughs> but let's talk a little bit more yeah, about yeah. your father's side of the family, because after all, the book was titled uh, "A Village with My Name," which refers to Tong Zhuang in mm-hmm. Fumaying Village in northern Jiangsu. Um, Northern Jiangsu, Mm -hmm. the north of Jiangsu province or Subei, doesn't have a particularly good reputation as I understand it. Can you tell us a bit (laughs) about the region? (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. So, as you know, you go to China and everyone... Well, dude, I'm from Henan. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's on that order of of disrespect. Another thing you have in common with Kaiser, Scott. Exactly. We, We come from these... Oh, there we go. Right. The armpits of China. Right, these kind of forlorn... Right. Parts of China. I mean, when I would tell people that, you know, they ask, what's your Zuji? You know, where's your, where's your, where are you from? And I would say Subei. And it all it would almost always go this way. They would say, 
Oh, you know, the, the, uh, near, near Huayan, the city of Huayan, that's the closest to where the village is. And they say, oh, you know, the premier of Doan lies from there. And then the conversation yeah. <laughs> because there's nothing else redeeming to say about Sube, right? The, it is northern part of Jiangsu province, you know, a very wealthy province in China, but this is the poorest part. It floods over constantly. You know, that part of Jiangsu province was important when the Grand Canal was very right. important. The Tong Village is right next to this uh, Jinghang Yunghe, you know, the Grand Canal that connects Beijing to Hangzhou. Like the canals in America, they, they became less and less relevant. And so towns that were along there became less and less relevant as well. In Shanghai in particular, uh, folks from Subei are, have been looked down on forever. They were some of the late migrants to go to Shanghai in the 20th century. So by the time they got there, they weren't the bankers. They weren't the knife sharpeners. They weren't the carpenters. You know, they lived in the, in, in the bad part of uh, northeastern Shanghai in Hong Kong, which became the Jewish ghetto, as right. you know. So if they were in contemporary Beijing, they would be evicted. Right. They're low-quality people. Huh? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, they may be getting those notices now, right, if they live, <laughs> if they live there right now. So it, it's... it's um, one friend, when I, when I got to Shanghai and I told him I was from Subei, he said, oh, well, nobody really has any reason to go there. <laughs> and he's right. <laughs> I mean, there, there's just, um, uh, it, it, is, it is not an important part of contemporary, uh, com- contemporary China, about four hours north of, uh, of Shanghai. I've actually been there a couple of times. Yeah, I, I went yeah. there on a reporting trip to this town called Suqian, which is fascinating. Uh, talk about that some other time. Mm. Let's let's get into this first main family member who you focus on is your paternal great-grandfather. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a rather remarkable biography. Uh, yep. includes a sojourn in, in Japan. He comes back to China with a Japanese wife, and I don't suppose that went over very well with the first wife. Yep. Uh, and then he actually saved his village from the Japanese, according to sort of local legend. So tell, tell us the story of your great-grandfather. Tong uh, Zhengyong is his name, right? Yes, Tong uh, Zhengyong. So when, when my dad and I found the village, uh, and, and it took all day, we weren't sure it still existed, and we had to actually pick up four middlemen along the way <laughs> to kind of lead us to the village and finally find the place, including the party secretary. We went, and, and, and people started you know, telling pretty similar stories about him, that he was from um, the Tong village, as small as it is, once upon a time kind of had two sections to it. There was Tong East and Tong West. So Tong West was, is, is where my branch of the family is from, closer to the canal. And he was from there. And he was the first out of the village for our sub-branch of the Tongs. And he, he went to Japan. He, as best we can tell, he aced the, the civil service examination, and he was sent on the public dime to Japan. And that was during this fascinating it's kind of an enlightenment period for these Chinese scholars. You guys have talked about this a lot sure, in the podcast, sure. right? Sun Yat-sen went at that time, Liang Qichao, Kang Youwei, and, and uh, Lu Xing, on and on, right? The, when, when China was on its knees, the Qing dynasty was in its dying days, the scholars went to Japan where the, the newest ideas on, on the planet were being discussed, whether it was political revolution, whether it was uh, Darwinism, uh, empiricism, Marxism, all of these ideas were, uh, Japan was the place to interact with them for most Chinese Absolutely, students. Absolutely, yeah. Some Chinese students came to the U.S., some went to Europe, but most went to Japan. It was cheaper, uh, the food wasn't weird, and it was, it was uh, the more obvious place for them to go. And so my, my great-grandfather went there. Uh, we know he went to Waseda University and studied law there. And as you say, he, he married a Japanese wife to the great surprise of his Chinese <laughs> wife back in the village. He, sp- he spent a little bit of time uh, with the Tongmenghui, oh, this right, yeah, underground revolutionary alliance. The precursor to the Guomindang. Right, right. That plotted revolution failed many times until they succeeded. And he, he was, this is oral history, so couldn't find documentation of that. But a number of people said he was hanging out with those guys for a while. And, uh, and then he moved away from politics, studied law, came back to, to China, spent much of his time practicing law in Nanjing. So he was one of these, right, these overseas scholars. He had this cachet of being this outward-looking uh, Chinese person who 
you know, back then, I guess the story of a lot of people in, in my family history is, you know, these kind of global citizen, these outward looking Chinese people, when the door is open to the rest of the world, they're the opportunists and, the, and they, you know, they're the, they're the elite. And when the door closes, they're the traitors, right? They're, they're, they're the people whose allegiances hmm. are questioned. Um, but at the time, you know, he, he made a good life of that. In, 19, in the late 30s or so, he returned to the village toward the end of his life. We believe the Japanese came uh, to that part of Subi in 1940. And uh, as the story goes, the Japanese troops were, were coming, and people certainly, it, it, what, this wasn't too far from Nanjing, and they'd heard about what happened uh, in late 1937 in Nanjing. As the story goes, my grandfather went out with his Japanese wife and his Japanese language, went to talk to the to the troops, and he convinced them to spare the village. I guess there's one version that has him waving a Japanese flag, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he waves a Japanese flag. The other version says he waved a white flag. And like a lot of these village stories, everybody tells it with a thousand percent certainty, right? Everybody is kanding. Everybody knows what the story is uh, until they conflict. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah. you know... We, I, but remarkably consistent at the core of the story, of, of his life story, and what happened toward the end of his life, uh, you know, during the Japanese occupation. So, um, uh, he, on my side of the family, is, is the side where he married the Japanese wife. So, um, you know, we have these, my side has these trademark, whether we're blessed or cursed with these uh, very dominant eyebrows, and that's the Japanese side of the family. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we'll make sure to put a picture of you up uh, so that everyone well, can see the eyebrows, eyebrows in person. Um, yeah, just, just focus uh, on that. What, what about your, 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 so your grandfather then, yes. your, the, uh, Tung Zhen Yong's son, mm-hmm. was he stigmatized for, for being half Japanese and growing up now at, at this point? So he presumably was born in the, in the 1910s yep. and you know, grew, I'd, grew I'd, up how? I mean, what he was a young man during the war. I, I did not hear of him being, being stigmatized. Uh, he may have. He was born in 1911, so that, that's the right time period. He also studied law, uh, became a, a law professor at a university where Chiang Kai-shek was the university president. So that's what got him in, uh, in trouble, uh, you know, during the Chinese Civil War. I didn't hear about him having, pr- I mean, he had other problems, but this kind of Japanese heritage, I didn't hear that about that being a, uh, a problem at the time. You know, my, my grandfather, I spent a lot of time with my grandfather over the years, and, and this is the kind of stuff that he never told me. Right? I mean, you, you, can, you can spend hours with people, uh, you know, at the, the first two inches of the surface of their existence, even though they've seen so many fascinating things in their lives. Right, right, right. So he would have been seven years younger than my grandfather okay. and uh, a contemporary of him who also taught. Uh, it, it was in Chongqing as well mm-hmm. during during the war, and they almost certainly knew one another if they were both professors. No, I, I, I would think so, right? So your dad, my dad was born in Chongqing in 39, and your dad was born a few years before right. that. seven years. Yeah. Okay, right. okay. So right. the, the gap is seven years. I think I'm seven years older than you too. Speaking of these... Um you know, very old family stories. I mean, one interesting thing in 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 your book, Scott, is um, how ideological and class differences with roots in the distant past endure for many years, and in fact, are still playing out in your ancestral village. Can you talk a little bit about the village with your name and the uh, the west side, east side beef? Yeah, yeah. The so on the west side, the side where we come from, historically, that was the, that was the side of the the scholars, the landowners, the capitalists, the um, you know the people who who were early, uh, who got out of the village earlier on, totally looked down on the people on Tong East. Right? They they were the the, the villagers, the farmers, and then um, everything flipped uh, after after liberation. Right? They were the ones um, connected to uh, to the KMT, and uh, you know my closest. Uh, the story about my closest relative there, the third cousin, was the start of his downfall was when a letter came from Taiwan. And my grandfather sent a letter to the village wanting to check in on what happened. And, and, he, and so my relative in the village got tainted with Haiwei Guanxi. Overseas relations, yeah. And that was the evidence they used against him uh, his entire life. 
And so the big power shift in this insignificant village <laughs> was, you know, the folks in Tong East, the, the, the rural base of the Communist Party, they, they took over and they took charge. They became the party secretaries um, in, in the Cultural Revolution. They paraded the people from Tong West, uh, you know, with the, with the top hats and, and with the, um, the Haiwei Guanxi and the other signs around their necks. So um, it, it, is, it is one of so many stories, I think, of, of these, you know, the Chinese people who, who are kind of connected to the outside. I think they live the political boom and the bust very often in Chinese And, and how about now? I mean, uh, so, I mean, you've taken us through to the Cultural Revolution. How about mm-hmm. after that? It still persists now. So my third cousin there, the reason he didn't get out is because he never got the opportunity to, to, to get out. He was given the worst plot of land. When his father died, it was a shameful burial. He wasn't even given a coffin burial, you know, so he was, his father's body was cremated. Really, the only opportunity came when his daughters got out as, as migrants. So the real story is he got left there, and he never got an opportunity to go to, go to the city. There were, you know, different jobs and opportunities that came, that came to the village, and as his daughters tell it, you know, he was really good at math and accounting. In a relationship-based society, he had no capital. Those, those relationships and opportunities never came to him. So he lived a very tragic life. This third cousin, his father, uh, starved to death during the, during the famine, as he tells the story. And toward the end of his life, he had, uh, he had esophagus cancer. There are a lot of cases of esophagus cancer in the village, you know, whether it's a cluster, who knows, so in a way, uh, this is the way his, his daughter said it. The tragedy is, you know, he died the way his father did, starved to death. So very tragic picture oh, of what God, happened yeah. in, in the village and how the power structure and the opportunities totally flipped. And, and even today, his daughters, when they, when they talk about the people from Tong East, they say, you know, we, we hate them. Let's move over down to the, the distaff side, to your mother's yep. side of the family. Uh, the title of your book, uh, if I may be so mm-hmm. bold, it, it buries the lead a bit. No? I mean, your mother's side of the family is frankly, <laughs> I mean, to my mind at least, uh, much more interesting, uh, especially if I may say your, your maternal grandmother, mm-hmm. Mildred Zhao, right? Mildred. Um, so, I mean, like there, there are amazing things about it. I mean, she was, as you said earlier, she was uh, educated by American missionaries. She spoke very good English. Uh, she was actually in Wuchang, mm-hmm. where, by the way, my mother was born. Really? Uh, when Wu Peifu was, uh, yeah, was besieged there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wu Peifu was this, this nasty warlord. Uh, he was besieged there by the Northern Expedition, um, which is kind of an interesting perspective because, you know, Wu was the guy who's famous for having fired on workers mm-hmm. uh, who are striking uh, in 1923. And we usually think of him as, as sort of the heavy, as the bad guy. And we think of the Northern Expeditionary Forces as the good guys. In fact, my, my grandfather was in the Army of the Northern Expedition, oh. and he was one of the people. You know, he wasn't fighting, but, you know, he was doing sort of clerical work for them, I suppose, or st- strategy Uh but it's a good reminder that in war and, and in, in a siege like the one in 1927 where your grandmother was, that innocents uh, really suffer. Uh, tell us about what she experienced then and, and later. I mean, her life is just is absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah. And her life is the one where I found the most documentation, the most documentation of it. It turns out that she, at the age of eight, went to a school run by American missionaries, Right, middle of nowhere, China. We believe she was born in Nanjing, and and there was this school run by American American missionaries called the Stephen Baldwin School for Girls in in Nanchang, Jiangxi Province. You know, kind of middle of nowhere in China, and and someone decided that this eight year old girl would number one have her feet unbound, and number two to to be educated. And this is 1911. She becomes part of this early generation of Chinese girls who can read and run. Um, and, and it's just, in my view, it's this great collision of women's stories. So we found the, these letters my grandmother chronicled in English language letters much of her adult life by writing letters to these American teachers who she met at this school, uh, two of them in particular, one from Rome, New York mm-hmm. on the Erie Canal, another one from Baltimore, Maryland. And it turns out, you know, she went to the school. She learned how to play piano. She learned classical music. She played in the glee club. Back then, they had a glee club in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so she and she always dreamed of going to the United States. Right, that was the one place on the outside that she heard about. 
And so she was part of this privileged on the, on the women's side, kind of this enlightenment generation on the women's side. And a lot of her friends had English language names like Sophie and Phoebe. And they, they, a lot of them went, came to the United States, uh, went to Europe, came back to China and opened up schools. In Mildred's case, the tragedy was that she never got to America because of illness, because of the, uh, the great flood of 1931, kind of washed her away. And because, as you say, Kaiser, because of the, the death of her father, right, her male patron in China in 1926, right? The Northern Expedition right, is right. framed as the good guys, right? They unified China. They, they got rid of the warlords. But then, you know, the real people who are in the middle of all this include folks who were inside Wuchang during the siege in 1926, right, this 40-day siege. And as she writes in her letter... Her father died on the 32nd day. We don't know how he died, but we do know a lot of people starved then, right? Nothing was allowed in. That's and right. when you read yeah. some of these accounts of what happened in Wuchang, right? One of these, one of the three cities in what's now Wuhan, it's the, it's the du- at the time, this double-walled city. And, and uh, the, the, the horrific scenes of what people did to, to survive, you know, there are a lot of Chinese and English language versions of that. I didn't know any of this until I started researching this. But certainly my grandmother was part of this privileged generation. Later on, and we can talk about this more, later on she went to Shanghai and founded a school where my mom was born. Listeners, this is where we need to reissue a spoiler warning because we are now obliged, Scott, to discuss your maternal grandfather, Carlton Sun. So those (laughs) of you who don't want to hear the big reveal, hit pause now. Okay, you've been warned. Scott, how old were you when you learned that your maternal grandfather had worked as an official in Wang Jingwei's puppet collaborationist regime? I was in my 40s. <laughs> uh, you know, I, wow. I was in the, the kitchen of my aunt's house, my mom's sister in Houston, and she pulled out a bunch of family documents, including the letters my grandmother wrote, and, and I started asking her about this, about all these letters. Well, first of all, why didn't you tell me about all these letters? And that is when she started to explain that, you know, in very, you know, kind of diplomatic ways, you know, we think he worked for the, for the Japanese during the war. Uh, we don't know too much of the story. And, you know, tragically, when, when we went to, uh, to Hong Kong in 1950, you know, he, he, he never got out of China. So it was phrased pretty indirectly and until i really started to ask people about it and and we found documents about his 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 conviction talk to historians who think about collaboration in china i mean it, it took a long time to get the basic part of the story about my grandfather yeah how did how did it make you feel i mean when you when you heard this when you i i don't know how invested you were in, in this idea of Japan as this reprehensibly evil imperial ag- aggressor at, at the oh, time. Oh, well, um, I mean, when I was in... I think for a lot of... yeah, And, I, and also, mm-hmm. if I may interrupt, Scott, perhaps you could also just give us a sense of, you know, what it means. Because I asked you how it made you feel, but, you know, for mm-hmm. audiences unfamiliar with that part of Chinese history, uh, they might not know, you know, why it could be something, uh, a matter of shame. Yeah, I guess it's sort of like my dad was a Vichy official under Nazi occupation of of, of France. It's the, it's the same. Isn't it sort of like that. That's or, right. No, it's the same, like, the same framing. Early on, you know, I learned about uh, this. Going back to Taiwan, you know, we learned about the, these key moments in the Japanese uh, attack and occupation of China. You know, the Joiba Shibian and the Chichi Shibian. You 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 kind of learn that version of history where the Japanese are, are painted in, in, in these, you know, extreme, uh, unnuanced ways about the occupation. That's how I always thought about that part of history. So then to hear that, you know, I went to, to an archive in Wuhan and talked to an archivist there. This is when it really hit me. And, and I said, you know, I, I kind of have these documents and, you know, we, uh, you know, he was convicted as being a, um, a Hanjin, you know, a traitor to the Chinese people. He said he was convicted of being that. Right. 
And this archivist looked me in the eye and he said, no, he was a Hanjin. And, and that's, when, that's when I had nothing to say where it... it uh, wow. There, there are historians who think about collaboration who say it imposes this moral map over a, a political and geographic kind of story, right? It, it suddenly puts mm, things in mm. these black and white terms and, and, and you don't think rationally for a while, right? The, when, when that overcomes you, when the, the shame overcomes you and you realize this is, this is the, one of the first things I, I knew about my, my grandfather, it was, it was hard to hear. It was hard to talk about. When I spoke to my mom about some of the information I learned about him, she first said, you know, I don't think, I don't think much of this should be in the book. You know, I want kind of veto power over some of the details in this in this book. And then, as we, as she and I uh, went to Wuhan to talk to some folks about this, and what, what what I found really interesting is, you know, once kind of the rational brain starts to kick back in, you know, after after this sense of moral failure, Wuhan is a place where there is a lot of nuanced thinking about this, uh, because a lot of people who are still there. They had relatives who were, were who were collaborating with the Japanese regime as well. Right during the occupation, the Japanese forces That's they right. didn't have enough people to to occupy right northeastern China or places like Wuhan. They had to have people run the place for them. And you go to a place where it's full of people whose families helped to run the place. Now, they have a certain understanding of what it was like. And one uh, historian, my mom and I. Uh, talked to said he was very kind of clinical about this and and so much analysis in is in arithmetic terms or say he said i think he said there there are four or five explanations for for how this happens you know and he kind of ticked them off as he was uh, you know one one finger at a time you know one is you know perhaps they they actually intellectually believed in the uh in in uh, the japanese side of the war another is perhaps they were tricked or perhaps they were you know, threatened or blackmailed, blackmailed or, right, right. to to do this. In other words, perhaps they had no choice. I mean, in a couple of those years of the occupation, the harvests were so bad, the food was so scarce. Right? Perhaps people just did what they could to feed their families, or perhaps you know by by then he's on number five, or or perhaps this was uh, this was a kind of an opportunity in the fog of war, and you look for an opportunity and you you just take it, you know, for yourself or for your family. Um, you know, it's mm. very kind of. Mm academic, intellectual way of, of thinking about it. And to me, that was the first time I kind of thought about it that way. Because in my view, the Chinese have not really had much of this reckoning with the, the collaboration history, how, how, it's, how it's, a, it's much more gray than we think. And um, you mentioned Vichy France. You know, the French, I think, have been having a generation of a conversation about uh, you know about right. collaborators and and the evidence is that it, it certainly wasn't the case that you just had a few collaborators and everyone was resisting. Now that wasn't the case in France, probably wasn't the case in China, but I don't, it, it's it's one of those pretty untouchable concepts still in China. Scott, it seems to me that attitudes in China actually about collaboration. Hmm have started to change yeah. or have changed over the years. Really. I mean, 10 or 12 years ago, I, I was watching, there was this uh, television serial uh, that actually featured Wang Jingwei mm. in his pre-collaboration days, mind you. But, you know, he was a, a Republican revolutionary. He wasn't this sniveling. I mean, he's usually portrayed just in, in, in such a, a unpleasant mm-hmm. way. I mean, he's, they play up his vanity. They play up all these, 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 this pusillanimity. And he's, he's actually, uh, not painted so badly in this television series that I I can't remember the name of it right now. Uh, and, you know, I mean, you read books like Rana Mitter's new mm-hmm. book, uh, well, it's not so new, a few years old now, uh, where it, it draws very heavily on the diary of a, a collaborator, fool, I can't remember his name now, but uh, fascinating, absolutely a fascinating look. And, you know, it really sort of gets into his mind and, and what, what he was thinking. Uh, I, I, I imagine you must have read Rana's yes. book as you were re- researching yours. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I, and I, I spoke to him. Uh, Rana Miller put, uh, turned me on to a, uh, a, a video series of you know, different experiences, 
during the Japanese occupation, including some who who were uh, convicted as as collaborators. And you did hear their stories about why they did it. Some of them were quite everyday reasons for for doing it. So. I guess to me, there is some space on the Chinese internet, some space in more kind of private ways to talk about it. To talk yeah, about but, it. Yeah, but certainly, yeah. you know, speaking to kind of family members who were on, on either sides of it, most of my family members didn't want to talk about it. It was one of those places that you still don't go. And that was my kind of yeah, dominant experience yeah. as, I, I, totally as I was talking that. to people about it. It was still because... As you know, on the mainland and in Taiwan, you know, it is it is part of the founding myth in, in all of these stories that they defeated the Japanese and, and uh, anyone who was, you know, had a whiff of being a collaborator with the Japanese, you know, they're on the wrong side of history. And, you know, as you know, if you're on the wrong side of history, nobody writes yours. Indeed. I mean, it's funny, I, I've, I, I can't help, um, you know, feeling an echo of the shame uh, from having grown up in apartheid South Africa uh, uh. when I was a kid. We'd sometimes go to uh. England, uh, where my very left-wing relatives would basically say to us, well, as long as we stayed there, we were collaborating with the apartheid regime. Mm. And we were, you know, to an extent, but we justified it because it was difficult to leave and we didn't know if we could, you know, leave. We didn't have papers and if we could get jobs, my parents could get jobs elsewhere. And we justified it to ourselves because we thought that being inside the system, we actually would make things better. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a similar feeling. It's not quite um, the same because somehow the world, Mandela made the world forgive us. So Mm. uh, we're not tainted thanks to Nelson Mandela. Anyway, (laughs) um, Scott, how did your parents feel about you writing the book? I think you mentioned, you know, your mother's concerns. Uh, Besides... uh, the collaborationism, uh, there was your paternal grandfather leaving for Taiwan with just one of his children, leaving mm-hmm. his other kids behind and with a mistress instead of his wife. Um, you know, so, I mean, you do do something that Chinese children are cautioned not to do, which is, yep. you know, air the family's dirty laundry uh, in public. Well, I think their perspective on this question changed in the course of the project, actually. Initially, I, I still remember this little cafe restaurant in Shanghai where my mom first said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with a lot of this information being out there about, about my family and my father. And then as, as we kind of learned more about the story and as I went out to Qinghai to try to find the labor camp where, where he was sent in the end and where he died, we believe he died, um, and, and came back with the stories of a lot of people who have a, who have a similar story of e- either the collaborator side of the story or relatives who, who died in the labor camps. She said, you know, you have to tell the story because it matters to a lot of people to know it. Now, so much has been swept under the rug. Um, you know, who else's stories have been swept underneath with it? Um, and, and, and it was very surprising when she came back and said, I think you need to tell the story. Um, my my father, uh, huh. yeah. Now my father's side, you know, they they, they have their stories too. Kai, Kaiser, you mentioned, right? My grand, my father was lucky that he was the oldest son. <laughs> he was the one who was taken to Taiwan, you know, and he was also right. lucky that they got on the. There were two ships going back and forth at the time, kind of taking these uh, these these uh, KMT Guomindang refugees to to Taiwan. They got on the boat that didn't sink. Uh, you, you probably know this story, but you know one of them, one of the ships, you know yeah, the Titanic yeah. story of China from uh, from nineteen early nineteen forty nine. I mean casualties on the order of the Titanic, and they and they my father and his it's like fifteen hundred yes, people yes That's and crazy. and my father and his father yeah. and the mistress um, they got on the boat that eventually made it to to northern to northern Taiwan. So they have blessed this because. Um, the front story, if you kind of tell the family story um, and and preserve everyone's reputation, there's a huge cost. And the cost on, on my father's side of the family is the brothers who got left behind. Um, and, and those stories to him and to me are really important stories to tell, right? People who were tainted by these overseas connections and, uh, and, and suffered and have those stories to tell. That's the cost. If you, if you cover it up, that's the cost of telling that story. Having said that, um, as, as the book has just come out, one of my father's friends read the book and he hated it. 
and he called my dad. Yeah, yeah, you told me about that in an email, a high school classmate of your dad's, yeah. Yeah, and he said, I would never let my son write this kind of a book. You know, kind of putting these these bad things that your father did uh, for for the world to uh, to to know. You know, I, I, basically, how dare he write this? He write this story. So I'm I'm gonna write about it. I'm gonna blog about it. I'm yeah, gonna try to yeah. interact with uh, you know with this. Um, I get that. Um, it, it is. I mean, as I think about it, you know, from my perspective as the oversharing American, <laughs> right? We live here in this, we live in this open kitchen kind of approach to society where, you know, we believe there's, you know, uh, there's humanity, there's forgiveness, there's nuance. Um, and, and when you kind of tell the story, it, it, there's an acceptance of that. Yeah, you banish ghosts, you achieve closure. Yeah, you, or you, you try. You, yeah. I think Chinese people deal with with it very very differently. They there's more. Yeah, see that 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 worldview. I don't think that travels well to China. I don't think that holds any currency in a Chinese yeah. society. Or at the very least, if you take no, if ta- no. try to take the currency to China, you get a really bad exchange rate. <laughs> because it it, <laughs> it 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 you know that that is something that that I don't I don't think is you know, is a value the way it's a value we have here. So. I understand that. It's funny. I mean, you often hear this. You often hear this criticism level at Chinese people. You know, why are you not pushing for more of an open reckoning, a public reckoning about the Cultural Revolution or Tiananmen in 1989 or fill in the blank? I mean, it could be really Mm -hmm. there's so many things about which uh, Western observers of China are, are are more eager to see reckoning than Chinese themselves. I, I think that's right. I think that's right. I, I mean, my at, at least for many Chinese, including my 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 father's brother, my uncle, who who I spent hours and hours with, uh, you know, he at, he kept asking me, "Why do you care about this?" And every family has this kind of a story. You know, what's the point in 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 telling it? Um, and then he said, after all this time spent with him. Uh, and, and his is this fascinating redemption story, right? He suffered for the first 30 years of his life. And then when Deng Xiaoping came, they reinstituted the, reinstituted the, uh, the college entrance exam. He aces that exam and has this great second part of his life. But my uncle says, you know, I don't think you should tell this. There are a lot, lot, there's a lot of the story you can't tell. And I said, what parts of the story can I tell? But his right. wife And was... he's the one who says, well, you can only include the glorious parts of the story. <laughs> And, and, and his wife says, no, I, 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 I think, you know, the, the human side, the, the, the reality of the story, you know, those stories are worth telling. So the two of them are kind of the two sides of this, this debate, really, yeah, right, in, in China. I think more people are maybe more like my uncle. You know, he, 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 the, the last conversation I had with him before I, I finished writing the book, he said, um, you know, I, I have friends in America, and I hope they don't read this. I hope they don't read this about me, this kind of embarrassing, shameful mm. part of my past. And I said, well, you know, it's going to be an English, it's going to be a, an, an English-reading North American audience. And he said, well, I have friends in America. I said, how many friends do you have in America? Six. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. So that's the, right, that, that's the, uh, that, that's where the the shame part of the story comes in. Yeah, shame. Well, that is, that is you can't escape shame when you talk about Chinese history. Um, Scott, though, you, you didn't always hit walls of resistance when you were mm-hmm. reporting for the book. I mean, one, one section that I thought was really remarkable was when you were out in Shanghai and you were looking for, you know, the Laogai or the reform through labor camp where your, your grandfather had been sent. It seems to me that, you know, if you had been just a, a normal Western reporter on such a mission, you would have had quite a bit of difficulty. It would have been really hard. Not everyone would have been so cooperative. But in this case, it seems like you, you, you had a lot of people who were quite eager to help once they realized what it was you were doing, that you were you know, finding the truth out about your, your family history. Is that, is that, is that yeah, the case? Y- yes. No, you know, that, that was the, one of the big surprises in, in working on this book project was how open at times Right, some of these regular Chinese people were to me. If even if I were the Chinese American, you know, foreign journalist, uh, presenting myself that way, trying to understand uh, the story and getting information, I I would not have been allowed into the places I was allowed when I presented myself as this grandson of China, mm. uh, trying to get the the story. And 
I can only attribute it to many people who say, you know, we 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 agree with that. You know, we kind of understand uh, that right. that part of the story has to be has to be told. Uh, one one guy snuck me into the archives, you know, where the uh, labor camp names and records were. Uh, the the woman who worked at the archive, you know, she spent a long time trying. My my grandfather had different different names, and she looked for all of them to try to find something. And in the end, she said, you know, a lot of Chinese families have come trying to do exactly what you're trying to do, and they usually fail because a lot of the records aren't there anymore. So my suggestion is, you know, you go to where these mass mass grave sites are, and you just take some of the soil. And uh, and you take it back, and you have some kind of symbolic burial and remembrance of your loved one. There were a lot of those kinds of moments when I when I went out to to Qinghai to try to. I mean, the 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 city where the labor camp uh, used to be that my grandfather, we believe my grandfather was in. That, that's not open to foreigners. Actually, it, it's a weapons testing. It's kind of the Los Alamos of China. Right. And and they told me you're you're not going to be able to get a train ticket to go there. You have to take a bus. You can't get a hotel there, so you can stay with my friend who's there. A lot of these kind of small moments of of um, of helping me kind of push forward that as a reporter, you tend not to experience those moments. Scott, let's talk about this cousin of yours, uh, Tong Chung Khan, who lives in Shanghai. He yes. is an interesting character, He's kind of a Shanghainese millennial everyman in some ways, yep. facing the horrors of the marriage market and Shanghai's Philistine culture. Tell us about his plight. <laughs> You know, when I first met him uh, in, I think I first met him in 2005, and we, we moved there a year later, he was the picture of that, you know, generation me. He, he had a sleeker, thinner laptop than I had. He had a bigger, more sophisticated camera than I have. <laughs> and, and, and he, it, it, at first blush, kind of this caricature, right, of this kind of modern, uh, modern Shanghai person. Um, you know, very interesting in... Also, in somewhat tragic ways, he's a musician. Uh, you know, he loves classical music. He plays. He plays the clarinet. He rides a, a road bike. You know, he's a big cyclist, and he's really interested in, uh, in in Chinese history. He took me to this part of Shanghai, this kind of forgotten part of Shanghai, where uh, there was a plan drawn out to kind of create a, a, a Shanghai for the Chinese people. You know, rather than using the the buildings of the of the uh, uh, the colonial buildings of uh, of past kind of neo-colonial era, and and the the sad uh-huh. part of it to me is I think a lot of those things would have a lot of value in the U.S. You know, somebody who cares about history and music and is pretty thoughtful about the past. Sure, sure. Yeah. I don't know how much value there is in in Shanghai to those kinds of things because you know he has a pretty good job at a General Motors plant, but he doesn't make enough money compared to others around him, and. He still lives with the here with his parents. He doesn't own property, so you know, three strikes, right? And the only woman who wants to date him is from Henan. Oh. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, the, the, yeah. The, she's from Henan. The, the, I think it's, she's a violist. Right, right, in the exactly. Orchestra. I mean, yeah. he he gets so excited about telling yeah, about this yeah, uh, yeah. this woman who plays the viola, and he gave her a ride home, and you know, uh, but there's a problem. There's always a problem. You know, and and uh, if we get ma- and and he thinks all these things through, all these things that I never thought through when I was getting married. You know, what happens when we have a child, and then um, whose parent is going to take care of the child, and they're going to clash. You know, because you have the Shanghai city culture and you have the Hunan. Uh, it's a different culture. You know, they celebrate Chinese New Year differently. They're they're not going to get along, and the families have to get along. So, just. Um, Jeez. You can take the snob out of Shanghai, but you can't take Shanghai uh, out of the snob. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and right. And he would kind of articulate these things in, in ways I'm like, oh, yeah. He, he lives that, right? He hears that from uh, from his parents. And, and interestingly, yeah, he yeah. says, you know, we live that in my own family because his mother's from Shanghai and his father grew up kind of up the river in Changzhou. So they have this unequal relationship, right? You have this superior Shanghai person to uh, this, uh, you know, lesser person from somewhere else. And he said, you know, my family's lived that. Do I want that as well? 
So I, I suppose this is another spoiler of sorts, but you do devote a good chapter or so of your book to talking about your own experience with transnational mm-hmm. adoption and your growing suspicion that your own your daughter might very well have been adopted under circumstances other uh, than what was initially presented to you. Can you can you talk a little bit about about that? About you? I mean, so you, one of your children is is a, a Chinese born adoptee, right? That's right. Yeah. Now I have uh, two boys and a girl. My daughter is the one adopted from Hunan Province. When we started the the process uh, in the early 2000s, I think we started our paperwork in maybe 2002. From this, you know, in what in what in retrospect is this naive American uh, viewpoint was, you know, we're doing this because of the one child policy. There's a surplus of girls that nobody wants, and in my wife's family, her siblings are all adopted. So it's something we decided that we wanted to do. And at this, we finally went over in 2004 and, and adopted her with 13 other American families. And it was this, we trusted the system. You know, somehow people in the United States, they didn't trust, right, Chinese products at the dollar store. They don't, they didn't trust the pet food, but they trusted the integrity somehow of this, uh, you know, of, of where Chinese babies come from. And so we went and at, it turns out at the same time, Right there was this baby uh, trafficking family ring that was in the middle of these transactions, where they were acquiring, purchasing, getting babies from Guangdong Province, and selling them to Chinese orphanages that were approved for international adoption. So it was this uh, this economy fueled by American money. So when my wife and I uh, adopted from China, you know, part of the rules were that three thousand U.S. dollars go to the orphanage, you know, which in in, uh, in middle of nowhere, Hunan, is a huge amount of money. It distorts the local economy. And when you, when you bring all that money into a place like that, sure. Uh, sure. it's going to invite corruption. Right? How, how could it not? Um, and so this, this, this amount of money was coming in there. And uh, as you know, in 2004, uh, this was happening. There was a pretty high-profile case when this family was busted for basically flipping babies, right? They, they would purchase them uh, for a certain right. amount of money, uh, flip them to the orphanage. Some of, much of this was documented. And then the orphanage, in turn, you made, made this huge you know, profit margin on these babies, um, or they had the incentive to do that with these foreigners coming in with that amount of money. Didn't find out about that until I started you know, reporting on some of this uh, after living in China, you know, one of the convicted baby sellers got thrown in jail, very bitter. And after he came out of jail, he started talking to reporters. And I, I started getting wind of the story then and then starting to wonder, boy, I wonder what happened in our case when we had these blinders on about the adoption system in China. A lot of it was happening all around the the orphanage uh, in, in the city where my daughter was born in Zhuzhou, uh, Hunan province. We don't know the answer, uh, you know, it, it, you know, whether she was one of these babies whose paperwork was, was falsified. But in the end, it probably is, uh, is an answer we're never going to have. Uh, but, you know, as we think about it and prepare to talk to her about it, you know, this was something that happened uh, was just part of the reality of what was happening at the time. And, mm. um, and, and you know, her... These babies were kind of in the middle of uh, of these economic forces that were happening that are quite easy to understand uh, in retrospect. And uh, you know whether you know she was or not. You know, a friend of mine puts it very well. She tells her her daughters who were also adopted under questionable circumstances. She said, "This is this is how it's only the story of where you began, and the rest of your life is with me." And that's the story we're going to be telling my daughter. That's a good way to put it. Wow, um, there's a an amazing amount of your personal story uh, in this book, uh, and it, it must have been very different working on it from you know reporting the news. Did you end up with more empathy for China and for its experience as opposed to what you had previously had as a reporter, when you possibly had a more adversarial relationship, perhaps, with the country? You're right, I did. Um, I, I guess, first of all, I experienced a, a kind of uh, empathy in certain ways when I was trying to chase the story from, from a lot of total strangers, you know, doors that, that opened. 
that I didn't expect. So, so number one, I, I, I interacted with uh, unofficial and official China in a very different way than as, as being a, a reporter. And I think the other part of it is, you know, I spent years trying to understand the, the cost of people whose lives changed dramatically when the political winds shifted, right? When China went from open to closed and then open again. So I understand at a at a much better level, much better than I did before, you know, why people can be hesitant that way. They they've lived this. You know, now I realize that my own family has has lived this and that they have lived this. You know, living in in Shanghai in a in a in a much lower trust society, it it can drive you it can drive you crazy. You can be really critical about about the society. And then when you understand a little bit more uh the reasons why uh, you know, people have incentives to to trust a little bit less. Right, it's a one spitten society. Uh, th- yeah, that's right. And and when you kind of delve into it, spend a lot of time delving into it, I think I understand it uh, a lot more. Do I, I do I agree with it? No, but I I can understand. I have a, I have a much more appreciation for it. I think. Well, Scott, what a pleasure it's been chatting with you about the book. And uh, once again, congrats on the launch. The book, again, is called A Village With My Name, A Family History of China's Opening to the World. And you should pick yourself up a copy. It's an excellent book. Scott, stick around and make a recommendation with us. But uh, first, let me remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina. Subscribe to our free daily email newsletter. Check out our excellent smartphone app or visit the website. And follow us on Twitter or on Facebook, where our handle is SupChinaNews. And if you like the Seneca podcast, please do leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes store. It means a lot, and it really helps other people to discover the podcast. Now, on to recommendations. Jeremy, why don't you kick us off? What do you have for us this week? Okay, I have two. First of all, if you ever find yourself in Nashville, Tennessee, there's a secondhand bookstore called McKay's, which is just this massive warehouse of all kinds of books from comics to children's books to science fiction and history and they have huge boxes of lego that you can just buy by the waist and toys and stuff and anyway at this bookstore which is wonderful i picked up a volume called the congo cables by madeline uh, g kalb about the cold war in africa from eisenhower to kennedy and it's just a fascinating uh, and very complicated story of how uh, the United States and Russia struggled for control of Africa, um, you know, doing all kinds of uh, dodgy things. Uh, I think it was published in, in the early 80s. Anyway, it's called The Congo Cables. Oh, that sounds great. You said you had another one or was it the bookstore and the book? Uh, yeah, the bookstore and the book. But the bookstore is only applicable to those who come to Nashville, Tennessee. So the book is the main one. Jeremy, the world, the world comes to Nashville, Tennessee. They do eventually. It's the new Beijing, as my former Beijing resident friend Tom says. <laughs> Scott, why don't you go next? What do you have for us? I have, I have two for you. One is a book that I've I just heard about, but it's going to be the next book I read about uh, the environment and pollution in China. It's called Resigned Activism. I don't know if this has come up in your podcast before. Um, resigned Activism, Living with Pollution in Rural China. The author is Anna Laura Wainwright, and I think it just came out earlier this year. It is about huh. the, well, I'm going to read a little bit about the daily grind of living with pollution in rural China. And the author finds, and, and when, we, when we do these stories, we kind of realize it, that the efforts to seek redress, they just get frustrated. There's not enough scientific evidence there are these complex political realities and people don't listen to them. So, you know, I think resigned activism is a great title for just understanding the the meibanfa of the environmental problems in China. So that's on my reading list. Yeah, there's a podcast um, uh, on, on public radio. What's called Rough Translation. I don't know if you guys have listened uh-huh. to it. Uh, my yeah, old yeah, colleague, Gregory Warner. I think it's a great way of understanding ourselves, seeing ourselves from the outside. Right. The, the, the premise is something that we're talking about in America and how it's being talked about differently in another part of the world. Great vehicle, again, for Americans to see ourselves from the outside. Oh, that's terrific. I mean, I, I will definitely check out that podcast. I'll subscribe to it right now. Rough translation. Mm-hmm. 
So I want to actually, I have a, a, a super enthusiastic recommendation I want to make on a double underscore and five star this one. Uh, it's called Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, A 500-Year History by Kurt Anderson, who is, uh, he's a novelist. He's the uh, He was the editor of the awesome Spy magazine back in the day, the people who coined short-fingered vulgarian Donald Trump. They always used to refer to him by that <laughs> moniker. Uh, this this book traces the roots of our, our decentered, uh, post-truth, completely epistemologically unmoored present all the way back to our history, all the way back to, you know, before well, to the, the Puritans. Uh, obviously, it was written for somebody like me, you know, kind of liberal, secular, pro-science dude who is not exactly into New Age or postmodernism or anti-vaxxers or televangelists or reality TV or many of the other many, 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 many manifestations of magical thinking or what he calls this the fantasy industrial complex. Uh, and he, he just, just viciously skewers. <laughs> uh, he has great chapters, especially in the 1960s. Uh, he makes the case that this do-your-own-thing ethos was basically the flip side of the coin to every man for himself, and that the same social movement that gave us, you know, many of our very cherished liberal ideals also gave us, you know, gun nuttery and snake handlers and Ayn Rand worshipping libertarian ass mm. <clears throat> um, jerks. Um, great, 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 great book. Well, that, that's it. Uh, Scott, thanks once again for taking the time. It's been just splendid chatting with you. Oh, man. it's been my, my privilege. Thanks for being interested and letting me talk about this. Uh, and we'll see you soon, I hope. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SubChina News and follow us on Twitter at, at SubChina News. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.